we are in this series called Major Problems, Minor Profits. And uh, all month long, we get to do this every year with, uh, with our church, City on a Hill, Impact, and New Beginnings. Um, Brian was here last week. He's from, he's from New Beginnings. And uh, Brian is preaching at City on a Hill today. Eric is out at New Beginnings. And it's an opportunity for us to kind of go to, the, to different churches to realize that we are bigger than one church. We, we like to do this once a year so that we understand church is not just inside of these four walls. I know there are more than four walls, but you get the point, right? Church is not just the people who are in this room, but rather, we're all working together, and we're all in this together, and our goal is not necessarily to have the largest church possible for Impact or for City on a Hill or New Beginnings or any other church, but our goal is to help as many people as possible know about Jesus Christ and have a life-changing relationship with him. And we can do that by partnering together and by working together and realizing that, that we're all on the same team and we're never going to be churches that compete with one another, but instead we're going to be churches that support one another. And we think that's a really strong, powerful, and biblical thing to do. So that's why we do a series like this every October. But for this particular series, we're talking about major problems and minor prophets. And each week we're looking at a different story from a different minor prophet. Now, if you don't know anything about the Bible, if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, you may be like, what is he talking about? Minor prophets. There's major prophets and there's minor prophets. If you read the Old Testament, books are broken down into different categories, right? There's historical books and, and law, the, the law. There's poetry, like the book of Psalms. There's a wisdom book, like Proverbs. Then there are also books that are called prophetic books, and they, and they revolve around prophets who were people who spoke on behalf of God to the nation of Israel or to the nation of Judah. And among the prophetic books, there are major prophets and minor prophets. Now, don't be deceived. Just because somebody is listed as a minor prophet doesn't mean that they are any less important than the major prophets. Literally, the only difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets is the length of the book. And if you're like me, you like short books, right? So I like reading short books. So when, when we talk about minor prophets, it's just prophets where the book is written and it's only a few chapters long. So that's, uh, that, that, that's kind of what we're focusing on. And today I'm going to talk to you about the prophet Joel. Joel is unique from the other minor prophets for three reasons. The first reason is this. It isn't exactly clear when this was written. We have a general idea of when this was written, it's likely between Ezra and Nehemiah. And don't worry, if you're like, if you're like I'm not into history, I, I'm not going to talk about history the whole time. I don't, I don't want to lose you. Okay? But just to set up the book, it's not exactly clear when it's written, but likely between Ezra and Nehemiah. It's after the exile of, of Israel, but we aren't exactly sure when, which is kind of unique for the prophetic books. Most of them, we can kind of pinpoint a, a good range at least of when it was written. We don't exactly know when Joel was written. The second thing that makes it unique is that it is very obvious that Joel is familiar with other scripture, other writings that we would consider scripture today. Now, at the time, they didn't have the, the uh, Bible like we have or like you would used to find in a hotel room, right? It, it, but there were scripture writings that they were familiar with, and Joel is very familiar with it because he actually references Amos, he references Obadiah, he references Micah, Exodus, and more. It is clear that, he, that Joel has been immersed in other biblical writings that we would consider today. That's the second thing that makes it unique. The third thing that makes it unique is that Joel doesn't necessarily accuse Israel of one specific sin. Most of the prophetic books, it's addressing something that happened 
or, or, or a way that Israel or Judah was living that was not the way God had called them to live. But for Joel, it's this general idea of sin. It's this general overview of, hey, sin is not necessarily a helpful thing, but it's not a specific action that he is, that he is addressing to the nation here. So this book is only three chapters long. So if you want to say that you read a book of the Bible, boom, go straight to Joel. You can read it in, in one sitting, no problem, only three chapters long. And it's filled with poetry. It's filled with imagery. It's filled with instruction and wisdom moving forward. And Joel references something known as the day of the Lord. This is a key theme throughout this book and most of the prophetic books. But the day of the Lord is often referenced through in the Old Testament, and is the key theme here in, in the book of Joel. The day of the Lord, if you don't know what it is, it describes events in the past where God appeared in a powerful way to save his people or to confront evil. It, it, it's, it, a good example of this is the plagues in the book of Exodus, when Moses is working to free the Israelites, to free the Hebrew people. God showed up. He showed up by sending the 10 plagues. He showed up and he confronted the evil that was Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he rescued, he saved the Israelites. That's known as the day of the Lord. And there's multiple examples of that throughout Scripture. And the prophets would often look at the day of the Lord in the past, and they would say, look at how God showed up here. Because we know God showed up here in the past, we also know that he is going to show up for us in the future. We can trust that God will be there for us in the future because of the day of the Lord in the past. And he confronted evil then, he'll confront evil again in the future. He saved us then, he will save us again in the future. He's always there for us to rescue us and to help us. And the prophets would take this and would preach this to the nations, to, to the people. So the beginning of Joel is broken up by a past day of the Lord, which is chapter 1, and a future day of the Lord that is to come, which is chapter 2. And in both examples, Joel gives us, he talks about a plague of locusts, referencing the book of Exodus and when God sent a plague of locusts to Egypt to save his people. That, that's what he references. So a plague of locusts in the past and a plague of locusts that is to come in the future. Now, if you are anything like the women in my family you would not do well here. Plague of locusts. If you were anything like them, Jessica is not very good at this. She does not like bugs very much. My wife, her name's Lauren. Um, she is eight months pregnant. We have a baby that's coming in, in, in about a month. She does not like bugs at all. My daughter, her name's Camden. She's five. She hates bugs. But when I first married Lauren, we've been married now for eight years, like the first few months of us living together after we got married, she would just like be in the other room and scream like a, a chilling scream. And in my mind, I would be like, somebody just broke in the window in the bedroom and it's kidnapping her and pulling her out because that was the type of scream that it was. That, that, that is surely the only action that would have deserved that type of scream. But that's not what she was screaming, screaming about. Instead, what she was screaming about was a bug. So like when we first got married, I would be like, oh my goodness, I need to save my wife from this intruder who's coming in. And I would run into the bedroom and she'd be like, there's a spider. And I would be like, oh, okay. And then I would take care of it. Now, being married for eight years, a seasoned husband, I'll hear her scream like down in the basement and be like, bug, 
She's like, yes! So there's one bug in particular that she really hates. It's a cricket spider. Raise your hand if you know what a cricket spider is. Okay? Raise your hand if you do not know what a cricket spider is. It's okay if you don't. I'm not going to shame you. Okay. I'm going to describe to you what a cricket spider is. It's a cricket spider. It's half cricket, half spider, okay? So if you think of a cricket with giant legs, right, that like bend up above its body, but a spider has eight of them, so a cricket spider has eight of these giant legs, and it is quite possibly the ugliest bug I've ever seen in my life, and I think it comes directly from H-E double hockey sticks, if you know what I mean, okay? A cricket spider cannot hurt you. But its defense mechanism is it knows it is but ugly. And it's not just ugly. It is ugly. Like U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi. You ugly. That sort of a cricket spider. That's how ugly this thing is. So it can't hurt you. But the way that it survives is it realizes how horrendous looking it is. And its defense mechanism is if you come and you think, okay, this is terrifying looking. I want to kill this. The only thing it will do is it will jump at you to scare you to get you to run the other way. And let me tell you what, it is extremely effective. (laughs) So when you see a cricket spider on the ground and you think, I have to smash this thing. By the way, it's blind and it only hears. It's basically like something out of a, a quiet place. That's basically what it is. A miniature version of this crazy, scary monster. And so if you go to try to kill it, it's going to jump at you in order to try to survive. But it can't hurt you. So my wife is down in the basement, and she screams, this blood-curdling scream. And I come downstairs because I'm a good husband. And I walk down, and I see him like, okay, there's a cricket spider here. She's up against the wall, like pinned against the wall, not moving. So I step in between the cricket spider and my wife because I'm a man. And this cricket spider is there, and I'm getting ready to smash it. The problem is my daughter, Camden, who was three at the time, I did not realize this, followed me down the steps. The steps are on the other side of the cricket spider. So now it is my daughter, Camden, who's three, the cricket spider in the middle, me, and then my wife behind me. And I got to think, who do I love more? (laughs) I have to try to figure this out. So my thought is, I'm just going to smash this bug as quickly as possible so that nothing bad happens. And I say, Camden, don't move. Lauren, I know you're not moving because you're paralyzed. And I come over, and I have my shoe, and I go to swing, and as I swing, it goes for the weakest one. The cricket spider jumps towards my daughter, Camden. I miss it, a clean whiff. The cricket spider goes towards my daughter, Camden, and the only thing I can do is run for your life. Save yourself. It's survival of the fittest. you got to get out of here. And she's just standing there, three, and she goes, And this cricket spider jumps towards her and on her, and she's scarred for the rest of her life. And eventually, it jumps off of her, and then it runs, and then she runs away. My daughter, my my wife, stiff armed me to get past, and she runs up the steps. Doesn't care about our daughter in the basement. I'm left behind, and I don't know where the cricket spider went. It's still alive, somewhere. We had to move out of the house to get away from this cricket spider. I tell you all that to tell you we would not do well with a plague of locusts. That's it. That's the only reason I told you that story. (laughs) A plague of bugs would not do well with my family. We would be in big trouble. So when I read about a plague of locusts that is coming, I'm like, ooh, that sounds terrible. 
I, that sounds like a, a, a nightmare situation. And most of us don't like one single bug, let alone millions of them at the same time, right? You, we just experienced the cicadas this past summer. It's, it's a terrible time. But talking about a plague of locusts, Joel's audience would immediately be reminded of the Israelites in Exodus when God sent the plague to the Egyptians on behalf of Israel. But this book, the book of Joel, is not directed towards the, the Egyptians. It's not directed towards Babylon or any other enemy nation that's around them. Actually, this book, talking about a plague of locusts that is to come, is directed at Israel. So they would look at the day of the Lord and they would say, oh wow, God came, confronted evil, and saved us in the past. But now this day of the Lord that is to come, Joel is saying, yeah, there is going to be a day of the Lord, and God's going to confront evil. But the evil is not in the surrounding nations. The evil is right here in our backyard. God's going to confront our evil here. So chapter 2 talks about an army of locusts that is coming to Jerusalem because they have turned away from God. It's kind of like the, how many of you are Batman fans? It's kind of like the quote from Harvey Dent in The Dark Knight, right? You either die the hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. That's what's happened to Israel here. They used to be the hero in the story. Now, they're the villains. Now they're the one who is doing something wrong. Now they're the ones who has turned their back on God. And Joel is warning the Israelites of the day of the Lord that is to come. They know they're not following God well. They know that they're living in a selfish way. The question is, how do we turn ourselves around when imminent disaster is on the way? That's the question. So Joel gives Israel a call to repentance. This is, this is huge. And he says this in, in, uh, in Joel 2, 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. See, repentance is step one when we do something wrong. But many of us don't even get past step one. Many of us don't even complete step one because we do not like to admit when we're wrong. Nobody likes to do that. If we do something wrong, I have an excuse as to why. Well, yeah, sure, sure, I did something wrong. Sure, I made a mistake, but I only made the mistake because you forced me to act this way, because this happened, and, this, and everyone's out to get me, because Joe Biden was elected president, or because Donald Trump was elected president. That is the reason why I can behave this way. That's the reason why I can be a jerk, because I didn't get my way. Because I didn't get things to go the way that I thought that they should go. And because it didn't go the way that I thought that it should go, I then am going to act this way. See, we don't like to admit when we're wrong. But Joel is saying, even now, and I love how it says even now. Even now. In other words, even now, even though you have constantly turned away from God, you still have a chance. Even now, even though you have constantly made the wrong decisions, even though you have constantly sinned, even though you have constantly turned your back on God, even now you have an opportunity to come back. Even now you have an opportunity to, to repent. Even though you are constantly straying away, God says, I'm still here. And you have an opportunity. This is important. So Joel calls Israel to repent. The question is, how do we repent? It says in Joel 2.13, rend your heart and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God. So what does that mean? Rend your heart and not your garments. See, sometimes repentance can be a show or a song and dance just to get us out of trouble. I know what I need to say. I know what I need to do. I know the motions that I need to go through just so I'm no longer in trouble. I'm I'm just going to rend my garments. In other words, I'm just going to put on a show. I'm just going to put on a face. I'm just going to put on a mask that, that, that looks like repentance. I don't really care about repentance. I just don't want to have to argue anymore. How many times do we do that in our relationships? All the time. I'm just going to say whatever is necessary so that you just stop talking. And then I'm going to move forward. That's called being an Eddie Haskell. The older people in the room know who Eddie Haskell is. I'll let you decide who's old. But Eddie Haskell is from a show called Leave it to Beaver. This is before my time, but my parents would often reference it. My dad all the time would call call friends of mine and Eddie Haskell. And um, uh, it's not a compliment. Eddie Haskell is a character from Leave it to Beaver. Whenever the parents were around or an adult figure was around, Eddie Haskell was the most well-behaved, perfect little angel child. And he would fool the adults. He would, he, would, he would put on a show. And then as soon as the adults were gone, Eddie Haskell was the worst possible influence on everybody else. He would say, okay, the parents are gone. Now let's do this. It's called being an Eddie Haskell. When it comes to repentance... Joel is saying, don't be an Eddie Haskell. Don't just put on a song and dance. Don't just put on a show just to get, at, just to get out of trouble. We know it needs to be said and done in the public eye just so we can move forward. And we often care more about, more about the appearance of repentance than actual repentance itself. That's often what we really care about. God is not interested in your show. God is interested in your heart. He's not interested in whether or not you go through the motions here this morning. God couldn't care less about that. But instead, he wants to know what's actually going on in your heart because true repentance equals genuine change. That's, That's what repentance is. And that's what that verse means. Rend your heart and not your garment. True repentance equals genuine change. There is no change when there is no repentance. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't make the same mistake twice. We do that. They, we, could, we could genuinely repent, genuinely ask for forgiveness, genuinely rend our hearts and still, make this, and still commit the same sin. It's very possible. But oftentimes what we do is we say, yeah, I'm sorry, I need to change. God, yeah, please forgive me. But you have no real intention of actually doing anything about it. See, my friends, that's not accepting grace, that's abusing grace. And there's a big difference between the two. I'm so thankful for the grace of God that is big enough to cover my sins, that's big enough to cover your sins, and I'm going to respect it by not just living in a way that says, well, if I can do whatever I want, grace is here. A lot of times, that's what we think. Well, you know what? I'm just, I'm just a, a terrible sinner who's going to constantly sin, who's going to constantly fall short. Good thing grace is there. And yeah, good thing grace is there. I'm not taking anything away from grace whatsoever. But instead of abusing grace and saying, I'm just going to do whatever I want, it should inspire us to live in a way that says, I'm so thankful for the grace that God has given me that I want to live in a way that reflects the love of Jesus, not just do whatever I want. That is where true repentance happens, is where genuine change 
follows. But if we, if we keep apologizing over and over and over and over and over again for the same behavior, and we have no intention of actually changing the behavior, there is no rendering of your heart, there's only rendering of your garment, and it is worthless. It's worthless. There's no point. That doesn't help us whatsoever. It just gives us the appearance of being a good Christian or a good person to the people around us. But God says, you are not doing anything worthwhile. You're putting on a show which I don't care about. I want to know what's happening in your heart. True repentance is genuine change. So we talked about how to repent. But Joel even tells us, he goes further, he even tells us why we should repent. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. I love this. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Now, this is a direct quote from Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. A direct quote. So he's referencing something, he's quoting something that the Israelites would read, and they would say, we, don't, we know what that is. We, we know where that's from. See, Moses was in the presence of God in Exodus chapter 34, and he was proclaiming how gracious, how compassionate, how slow to anger God is, and how abounding in love God is. A direct quote from Moses. So why should we repent? Because God's mercy and God's love is more powerful than his wrath. That's the truth. And I'm so thankful that that's the truth. See, God's wrath is there. God's wrath is here. And he's telling Joel that his wrath is coming for Jerusalem. But his love is also there. And his love is powerful. Here's the truth. God longs to show mercy to those who own up to sin and confess it. That's what he wants to do. He wants to show mercy. He wants to show love. But if we don't accept his love and his mercy, and if we don't own our sin, then we leave God no choice. It's time time to start taking ownership of your life. It's time to stop playing the blame game and saying, well, this person made me do this, and this, this part of the world made me do this. Well, that, this happened at work, so that, that, that's why I act like this. No, no, no. Enough of the blame game. Take ownership of your life. Take ownership of who you are. I know that you've had a difficult life. Everybody's had a difficult life, and I'm not trying to minimize what has gone on in your life whatsoever. I know it. I know that it's hard. I know this life is hard. But it's time to stand up and take ownership of your life and say, I'm the only one through Jesus Christ, who can really change my life. I'm the only one. I'm going to make the decision to stand up and say, enough is enough. I'm not going down that road anymore. I want to go down the road that Jesus has called me to go down because I know that it's better than any other decision that I can make. I know that it's better than any other way that I could go. This is the way that I want to go. And it doesn't mean that you live a guilt-filled life. That's, that's not my goal. I don't want you to be guilted into following Jesus. It means recognizing the ways that we have fallen short and learning from it. You can't learn from your past if you don't own your past. We want to learn from our past and we want to move forward. We can't do that unless we say, you know what, this is my past. 
This is what I've dealt with. This is the road that I've gone down. This is what has happened to me. I'm going to own it and I'm going to move forward and I'm not going to keep living that way. I want to live in a way that is in the light of Jesus Christ, in the grace of Jesus Christ, in the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. God doesn't want to bring his wrath. He wants to show love and mercy. And he's not even looking to do it. He, as a matter of fact, he's looking for a way out of it. He says, who knows? Maybe God will bring his blessing instead if we repent. Who knows? He would much rather show you love and mercy, and then that would be enough for us to change the way that we live our lives. But we don't always respond to his love and to his mercy. I told you I'm a parent of a five-year-old. I also have a son who's, uh, who's uh, two. And let me tell you what, if you, um, if you are a parent, then you know there's such thing called uh, the terrible twos. Let me tell you what, it's real. <laughs> I love my son, okay? Don't get me wrong. But sometimes I think he came from the same place that cricket spiders came from. <laughs> and... He's, he's wonderful, he's funny, he's hilarious, but um, he doesn't listen very well. And he's, he's, he's basically the equivalent of a freshman in college. Here's what I mean by that. You get a little bit of knowledge, and then you think you know everything, and you really don't know anything yet. If you're a freshman in college, I'm not trying to insult you, but I am. It's basically like being a toddler. Because he knows, all that he knows is, I want gummy bears. And I'll say, well, you can't have gummy bears right now. We're about to eat dinner. And he thinks, I want gummy bears. And I know what's best. And I'm like, you're two, and you, you can say five words total. Gummy bears just happen to be one of them. Well, I want them. And there's no convincing him otherwise. And if I say no too often, then what happens? He throws a temper tantrum. And then I just lock him outside. <laughs> I don't do that. Please do not call Child Protective Services on me. I don't do that. I want to. I want to. I don't, because I'm a good dad. But sometimes, if he doesn't behave, and if he constantly acts in this way, and I could just come, come up to him and be like, oh, I love you so much. This is so great. I love how you're acting right now. This is a wonderful time for all of us. You are making everybody in Wegmans just have a great time right now, and this is so much fun. Would you please keep acting this way? He'll do this until he's 40, Right? Sometimes you have to come along and you have to discipline. And I don't enjoy disciplining my child whatsoever. It's never fun. I don't, I don't hit my kid. Just I'm being clear here. I don't want anyone to think. But sometimes we have to discipline our child in order for them to respond, in order to wake them up and say, no, 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 this is not how we behave. I can't just constantly give you whatever you want whenever you want it doesn't mean I don't love my kid. It means I love my kid so much that I'm willing to do what is hard in order for the, him to be better and to grow and to improve. It's better for the future. It's going to make things worse in that moment, but it's better for the future. And sometimes we don't respond to the love and grace that God shows us and the mercy that God shows us, and sometimes his wrath is necessary to wake us up for the future. So how then does God respond to our repentance? And, and this, this is the, the last part. God gives us his spirits. See, it says in Joel 2, 28, and afterward, 
after, after Israel repents, I will pour out my spirit on all people. See, God's divine presence is here now. Right here, right now. But it's not just right here. It's in your car. It's in your home. It's at your work. It's at your school. It's at the grocery store. It's wherever you go. God's divine presence is right here, right now, among his people, real, accessible to you. When we repent, our spirit aligns with his spirit, which is a powerful thing. The second, thing, second way that God responds is he will restore you and confront evil around you the day of the Lord that Joel is talking about. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people, Israel. See, this is important. God will confront evil and bring justice. You do not have the ability to bring justice to everything in this world that needs justice. And sometimes we think we do. Sometimes we take it on ourselves to say, I'm going to ensure that justice is served in every area of anybody's life that disagrees with mine. Doesn't mean that we just accept evil in this world. But it does mean that there will always be evil in this world until Jesus comes back. And it's God's responsibility to confront evil, not yours and mine. It's not on your shoulders is what I'm saying. Doesn't mean that we just stand on the side and say, well, let's just let, let's just let evil run rampant in our world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that sometimes we become so overwhelmed with the amount of sin and evil and darkness in this world that we can think, I can't do everything, anything about all this. And it's absolutely true. You can't, but God can. And God will on his timing. It may not always align with our timing, but God is going to confront evil and the world is going to have to answer to God about evil. You don't have to make sure that justice is served. That doesn't mean that you don't take a stand, but you don't have to make sure justice is served. All evil will eventually be confronted by God at one point or another. And the last thing that God does, he makes all things new. And this is the best part. Verse 18 of chapter 3. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. You're made new. When you repent, when you turn to God, you're made new. Live like it. Don't, don't live defined by your past. We've owned our past, and we've learned from our past, and now we're moving forward from our past. You're made new. You're made whole. Doesn't mean that you don't sin. Doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes. But the blood of Jesus Christ washes over you and makes you white as snow. And there is nothing greater than not being defined by our mistakes, but being defined by the grace, love, and mercy of the almighty Savior of the world. Amen. So I'm going to invite the worship team up as we close. And I, 
there may be something that's weighing on your heart. There may be something that, that is, that's in your head right now. And maybe something where you're like, God is calling me to, to repent in this way. If he is, repent. Take the time. You don't have to wait to, to go home. You can do it right here, right now. When we start singing in a minute, lean forward and talk to God. And say, God, is there anything in my life that I need to be convicted of? Because God, I'm done living my way. I want to live your way. True repentance is genuine change. Genuine change. So that means that when you leave this place, you don't go back to your old life. You have a new life. The world may tell you that people can't change. The Bible says otherwise. I'm not going to believe the lies of this world. I'm going to believe the truth of Scripture that says through Jesus Christ, life is found. Through Jesus' sacrifice, hope is found. Through Jesus' giving gift, through his laying down his life so that we could live, it's the greatest gift in the world. There is nothing greater. So stop living in a way that reflects your past or the world and start living in a way that says, God, I'm repenting, I'm changing, and because of you, I am new. Because of you, I don't have to be bound by my addiction. I don't have to be bound by my attitude. I don't have to be bound by my family. I don't have to be bound by my friends. I don't have to be bound by my past. I'm going to live in a way that recognizes the grace and love and mercy of the Lord Almighty. That says you are big, you are strong, and you are loving. And because of that, I am so inspired that I'm not going to lay down and just quit, but I'm going to keep moving forward and I'm going to say, God, your hope is my hope. It's the best thing. That's why when we talk about there's no greater way to live than the way that Jesus is called, this is what we're talking about here. This is what we mean. Not defined by anything, but the one who calls you daughter and son. I don't know about you, but there's nothing else I want in this world. That's it. Nothing. There's other good things in this world, but there's nothing else I want besides having a family and a place to be loved and the creator of love did everything so that I could live and so that you could live it blows me away every time I think about it So if you need to repent, repent. If you want to live, live. Own it. Amen? Let's stand and let's sing.